Welcome to This is Civity. I'm Gina Valeria. Civity is a culture of deliberately engaging in relationships of respect and empathy with others who are different, moving people from us versus them to we all belong. To learn more, go to civity.org. In this episode, we talk with David Brooks, New York Times columnist and author of How to Know a Person, The Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Deeply Being Seen. David talks with us about his journey to find ways to know other people better and learn how to share his own stories and experiences as part of the knowing process. He shares the lessons and strategies he's learned to cultivate relationships big and small as a way to weave community. Definitely want to talk with you and have a conversation about your book and about the reasons behind it. But I'm hoping because this is civity that we could begin take the first couple of minutes of our conversation to do a uh, civity uh, interaction because it, I think it dovetails nicely with your book and the goals you have, which I understand are to have people connect better and and see each other better. I'm wondering if we could answer the question, both of us, what is something you do almost every day? I write every day. That's awesome. <laughs> I've written every day since I was about seven years old. So I love that. I do that every day. I love that. Um, I, I laugh every day now because my husband is so funny. So I get to laugh every day, which is really cool. I wish I wrote every day. I, I write many yeah. days, but not every day. I cry every I cry every day. <laughs> <laughs> a couple more questions I want to ask you, and we can both answer this question, is why do you do what you do? Uh, I don't really have a choice. Uh, if I haven't written in a day, I feel out of sorts and awful. Uh, so I guess that's the narrow reason. There's a, a great George Orwell essay called Why I Write. And he says, I write first because I want people to think I'm clever. Uh <laughs> Two, I enjoy playing around with language. Yeah. And three, I hope to make some difference in the world. And so those are pretty good reasons. Is that also why you've chosen journalism and also why you've chosen now to look at weaving and bridging and, and all of that? Is, is that? is that make a difference in the world part part of that as well? A little. I stumbled into journalism. I, was, I read a book called Paddings in the Bear when I was seven and decided I want to become a writer. And so I've been writing ever since. And I thought I would be a playwright and I thought I'd be a novelist. Then I got out of college and was an unemployed bartender, submitting freelance articles to magazines and getting rejected. And so somebody offered me a job as a police reporter in Chicago. So I covered crime and murder and rape and terrible things. Uh, and, um, but I came home every day with a story. Uh, and it was it, it was exciting. So I, I slipped into journalism through the back door. And then why that shift from journalism? I mean, I know you're still a columnist and a journalist, but why that shift into encompassing this idea of engaging across differences or engaging with people? Yeah, I came to the conclusion sometime around 2017 um, that a lot of the problems I was writing about as a political columnist had an underlying cause, which was social fragmentation, social breakdown. Uh, depression, misery, loneliness, isolation. I started writing about that a ton. And then I thought maybe I should do something extra. So I started uh, an organization called Weave, the Social Fabric Project at the Aspen Institute. And we were just celebrating the sort of people civity celebrates, uh, which is the people who are just really good at building connections and restoring community and building social capital and just all around good human beings. So I met Malka and Palma about five years ago through that work and got to know civity's work. And uh, we're part of a... Uh, a dispersed army of people trying to do the right thing. I also did journalism, but broadcast. I was a 
radio, TV, digital. And for me, it was always about making what you said, making a difference. It was always about this mission of like informing people. And then I've, I've transitioned into education. I teach now at Sonoma State. And it's kind of the same mission for me. It's like, well, to connect the kids where the kids, the students with, um, you know, helping them make a difference. So for me, it's always that mission. And that's why I work with Civity too, is, is this idea of trying to solve problems, fix things, you know, help people be informed and connected so that they can make a difference. It's funny. I, I teach college level too, and I still call my students kids. Yes. And I, I hope I, I call them that to their face and they don't seem to mind. Right. Somebody once told me, they have parents, but they need more parents. So I'm happy to play some surrogate parent role. I totally feel that way as well. The idea of your journey as a journalist and also this relational bridging, like we haven't been on the same journey, but I've also moved from that space into the bridging space. So I'm curious, you know, you noticed in your writing and you observed that, you know, this is going on with people and I probably should do something about this, but I'm wondering... Is there anything that happened with an interaction with you? Like, was there a moment where you were engaging with people or where you had some sort of experiential situation where it hit you or was it more of a gradual, a gradual thing? Yeah, I guess it was more of a gradual thing. But there are certain moments when you feel sort of the social breakdown more viscerally. Yeah. And some of them are, you know, you know, I, I, I totally miss the Trump phenomenon. So in 2017, uh, I went out. Uh, trying to rediscover, you know, I was teaching at Yale. I was living in DC. I was, my social life was in New York. So like, how could I be out of touch with America? Right. Spending <laughs> half my life on the Acela. Uh, and so uh, I then went out and just started interviewing people like crazy. And I still do it. I try to get to about 35 states a year, wow. two states a week on average. Wow. And so I do a lot of traveling and you just have conversations. Uh, some of them are very simple, but one thing I noticed that when I started my job as a journalist, when I'd go to the Midwest, about once a day, somebody would say to me, you people think we're just flyover country. And then by 2017, I was hearing that probably eight times a day. <laughs> and so the a great sense of people feeling ignored. Uh, and then it just became harder with all my baggage. I come walking into the room with the New York Times, the Atlantic, PBS, um, you know, I, I come with a lot of elite baggage. And then I went to work at the Aspen Institute. So like it was even more so. And you get, I just felt the waves of rippling hostility toward the elite institutions. Wow. And so that, those sorts of things were eye-opening. And at Weave, we hosted a big meeting with about 450 people. And it really got derailed. Uh, we were trying to talk about one thing, but it really became a, a struggle session, a pain session about some of the social injustices, especially racial injustices. And in the middle of the room we wanted to meet in the round so we'd all be equal yeah but we built a little 18 inch stage for the speakers and it turns out the people in the room hated the stage the idea that somebody should be above others was really like no that's your elitist thinking so it was a rude education it was a rude education what an amazing moment um that a simple stage like which i would do as well like i've done theater and and so of course you want people in the back to be able to see what's going on but to have that perspective reflected back to you that that it's also you know elevating someone is fascinating what did you make of that when that when when that moment happened well i just think there's a lot of disgust at the at the institutions of american society uh and i and i frankly i with that this happened probably in 2018 and it was a, a preview of what america saw after george floyd's death uh when a lot of the the pain in the room was expressed i was unprepared um 
for how to confront people who would come at me. Like I come, as I said, with all this elite baggage. So a lot of the time people come at me with complaint that I'm part of a system that they find holds them down. And this is true on the left and the right. So how do I engage with them across what they perceive of, and I guess really is, uh, inequality of power? Yeah, yeah. No, and that's such a challenge. And that's also, as you know, what Civity is trying to do. So I was able to listen to your book, which was lovely to hear you read your book. You observed in the book, or you discussed observing and feeling uncomfortable with taking up space with your stories. And I want to make sure I'm phrasing that correctly. And I wonder if, you know, here you're walking into a space to connect people and you're being reflected back at you that that you, they wanted a setup that was different. But there's also this element of what you were sharing in your book that you're more comfortable observing and maybe less comfortable uh, sharing your own stories or taking up that space. Am I, am I saying that correctly? I think there's an inhibition in my profession which is proper. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I was told by George F. Will when I first started this job and started being talking, asking columnists, how do you do this? And he just said, never use the word I. Uh, and so there's a natural, like, diffidence. Like, I don't want to be narcissistic as much as I genuinely love talking about myself. <laughs> uh, so when I wrote the book, and this happened to an earlier book of mine, I wrote it, and then my first reader, my research assistant said, you're not in the book. You have to put yourself in the book. If you're writing a book on how to know a person, it has to be a personal book. It has to be a conversation between you and the reader. And so you have to talk a little about yourself. So then in the second and third draft, I put a little more blather about <laughs> dear old David Brooke. Well, it was a pleasure to learn more about you in the book and get to know you better in the book. I think people really, uh, the way Malka from Civity says it is, is the gift of giving your story to someone else, or the, the gift of trusting them with your story, um, or being vulnerable. And, and I agree, like I, I talk too much as well as you might have deduced from this interview <laughs> no, no, and I no. did <laughs> trying to, uh, trying to back off and listen is, is something that I am always challenged to do. Um, and yet people, i also, I can think of times in my life when I've shared and people have been grateful that I've made myself vulnerable or trusted them. Um, can you think of a time in your life when you had to sort of weave that line between, well, I'm the journalist, I'm observing versus I need to, uh, this relationship needs me to, to be vulnerable or share. It's funny. My wife is also a writer. She edits a magazine called Comment. Yeah. And she stays friends with the people she writes about. It's two ways of interviewing. Like I, I think she just interviews as a friend and we all have our own interview styles. And so I think I interview as a student. Uh, I, I try to make the interview subject the, the teacher and I'm here to learn from you, but it's a, a less personal way of exchanging. I, I've learned that a lot of people who go into journalism, our job is to interview people. That's our job. We, we talk to people. And so you would think the people who go into journalism are the most socially adept people on the face of the earth. But it's, if you walked around with me around the New York Times newsroom, you would find a lot of socially awkward people. And that's because we need the interview to structure our social encounter. And so the, the interview says, oh, we can, I can have a conversation, but I'm in control and it's going to be all one way, uh, and that's very comfortable for us. And so I've had to really um, try to resist that and make it more of a conversation, make it more of a two-way. Because I was once at a party, and a very great journalist I admire was at a party and, with me, and we were outside around the campfire. Uh, and she started probing me questions about my private life. And it was all one way. She didn't add, like say anything about herself. And I felt like I was under a machine gun fire like with all those questions. Um, so. Yeah, I have to learn to to break through that 
that one-way nature of journalism. It's funny that you say that when it comes to writing. Uh, now, and again, I'm not a print journalist. I'm a broadcaster or a little bit more gregarious, as you may know. Yes. But also the writing. Like, I can write a structured thing. You know, if you give me the information, I can put that into a great story. But if you ask me to do creative writing, which my husband is very good at, that's that's I need the structure. Like you talked about the structure of the interview. I need the structure to write the story. I love that moment of you getting reflected back what it's like to be interviewed, even though her style might be slightly different than yours. Yeah, I have a story, a little story in the book, uh, which is it's in the chapter about asking interesting questions, get to know people. I was at a party in New York. You, the re, people are going to think all I do is go to parties. That <laughs> uh, I was at a party in New York, and a, a, there was a writer I met. It was a novelist from Princeton. Uh, and he says to me, do you ever drink when you're writing? And I say, no, I can't drink when I'm writing. It's, it's, I need to be, be able to focus. He says, do you ever drink after you're writing? I say, yeah, I'll have a, a glass of wine. And he says, why? And he said, well, because writing for me is such a controlled experience. I need some wine to just relax. And he said as a novelist that writing for him was such an emotional, out there experience. He needs a glass of wine to tighten back up. <laughs> and so we both had the same prescription, but it was for completely opposite reasons. And those are different kinds of writing. I love that. And I love that also that you do the same thing. And that gets to the idea of engaging with others, right? Because you think you're so different. And uh, really, we all do the same things. A lot of the times we want the same solutions, which is safety, security, our families to be safe. But we're thinking about getting there from very different pathways and thus see ourselves as so different. That story to me is just a great example of even though you're both writers and you do your thing, it's a great example of, oh, we have discovered a great difference in how we approach this, but the exact same thing we do. And I would say in general, as society, we spend too much time focusing on what separates us. Like, what is the difference between this and that, or between red and blue, uh, between black and white? Uh, and we emphasize those differences because they're important. But uh, Common humanity is kind of uh, vital to our, our species. Exactly. And you bring up that point a lot in your book as well. Like all of the studies that you referenced about the decrease in our social fabric or our social interactions and the increase in depression and the idea that, you know, we know that we are evolutionarily social beings and that we have moved in recent years into this space where we are separating ourselves. And that only breeds this idea that, oh, you must be so different. There's one story you shared in your book about a war and the man killed his neighbor and said that at the moment he killed him, his face was blurry and he didn't recognize the neighbor, even though the neighbor and he had been, had a nice relationship. That fascinated me. Not seeing the face of another neighbor uh, is the ultimate act of dehumanization. And the book was a little inspired by Ralph Ellison's novel, Invisible Man. In the first page of that novel, he says, when people look at me, they see everything but me. They see their stereotypes. He's a black guy. They see their stereotypes of me. They, they see the surroundings of me, but they don't see me. And he says, I want to lash out just to show I'm part of the human game. And I try with fists and it doesn't work out. And so it's a very great description of what dehumanization feels like. And the book you reference um, was written by a French journalist who, who went to Rwanda after the genocide and interviewed people there. And one of the guys he interviewed had murdered his neighbor of 25 years. And he said, as you said, when that moment when I swung the machete at him, his face didn't look the same. It was blurry. It was not the guy I would, had lived with next that years. We can easily slip into the spot where we don't see another human face. My husband, for the sake of what you're sharing, he's black. And we talk about these social interactions and how people see him 
when we're walking together, he'll say things like, you know, you give me a pass because I'm standing with you, I get a pass. I'm just learning sort of in this very intimate way how differently he is seen. You know, and that's an additional burden to consider uh, when you are engaging with someone. You know, I've learned through conversation with friends, like I can pretty much show up into any room as myself. Um, and a lot of people can, I think a lot of black people tell me they can, a lot of West Virginia truck drivers say they can, if they're at a fancy conference and they're West Virginia truck driver, it's like, what version of myself can I bring into this room? That's not really a question I asked myself very much. And I was just having a conversation with a uh, friend who she said, it's interesting how people treat me in radically different ways. Like just at the checkout line at a grocery store, some people are super nice and some people are super not nice. And I'm like, I don't really notice that. Like, I, I, I'm, people are pretty average with me, but it's kind of consistent. And I'd never heard that before, but that was her observation, I'm, that that uh, she has to face a wider variety of human response. Yeah. And I can see, I can think of myself in that moment. And if I'm walking down the street and see someone who might be considered marginalized, I might be overly friendly. Whereas if I saw you walking down the street, I'd be like, hi. So I'm actually consciously thinking about, oh, I want to make this person feel welcome. I want to make sure they know. These navigating of our of our engagements across difference, getting this right, you know, we need to solve a lot of ills in our society. You talk a lot about getting to know someone. And again, correct me if I'm wrong, but what I took from the book is that you're focusing on sort of the how-to. When you try to uh, engage and figure out what another person needs, that how-to I think is more necessary than ever. So I think this book is very timely. Um, and I would love to hear from you why you approached it in that way, why the how-to approach. I was writing and doing weave and I must use the word community like 500 times a day. Like I was talking about we need more community and then I would use like relationship. That was a word I would use a lot. We need to build our work on our relationships. But those are abstractions. Uh, and the actual act of building a community or building a relationship is a series of concrete social skills. Like how do you greet somebody when you first meet them? Uh, how do you hang around with them? How do you reveal vulnerability? How do you ask for and offer forgiveness? How do you start a conversation? How do you end a conversation gracefully? Now, these are basic skills. And it occurred to me that uh, I didn't particularly know these skills. Uh, how do you sit with someone who's grieving? How do you sit with someone who's depressed? Uh, and a lot of people probably didn't know these skills. So really, the, the research for the book, which was like a three or four year process, was me just going around to experts and trying to learn what are the basic skills of how do you ask for an offer of forgiveness? When somebody confronts you with an angry political disagreement, how do you handle that? Uh, and so I just want the book to be very concrete, very practical. Here are the skills that may help you be considerate to the people around you. You're listening to This is Civity. I'm Gina Bellaria. We're talking with New York Times columnist David Brooks about his new book, How to Know a Person. To really get to know someone is one thing. And that's like the people in our lives regularly. But there are also all those small interactions throughout the day, which I think your your approach really also helps. You know, like if I'm walking in the world, observing people and engaging, I'm wondering if you are willing to share maybe some smaller interactions you've had, those, those sort of, you know, small touches as you go about your day that have affected you or made you feel part of a community when maybe you weren't the privileged one in the room? The small things are... Um just trying to take a casual encounter and make it a more personal encounter. And so it, it may be we're sitting next to each other on a plane. Uh, maybe we're sitting next to each other in a bar. Or to, you can tell where I spend my time. <laughs> um, uh, and so I may ask you about your childhood. 
Uh, I mean, people love talking about their childhood. Where are you from? Uh, and it may only be a 15-minute conversation, but I'll probably learn something about you. Uh, and maybe you'll learn something about me, and it'll be just a more personal encounter. And I've become a big fan of the power of small moments. It really affects me. If I'm checking out at the CPS and the cashier is friendly to me it, or not friendly, it really affects my mood. And it's just this little thing, but it's hard to shake off somebody who's not friendly. Totally, yes. So I, I've come to believe in the power of small moments and then turning each moment into a slightly better version of itself. So we may be just hanging around. I was hanging around with a friend of mine who, and a group of people, and he's a theologian. And I asked him, you know, what's your favorite unimportant thing about yourself? Uh, and he says, I'm a big academic, but I love trashy reality TV. And so I said, you know, I, I love early Taylor Swift more than I love later Taylor Swift. Uh, and so we had this conversation, and it was not truly earth-shaking, but we, it was a little better conversation we'd had if we just talked about the weather. Right. And doesn't that make you smile later? Like, like, oh, I know this cute thing about this, for, or this, you know. And then you have this bond, this strange bond about, oh, I heard Taylor Swift's song on the radio, or whatever. It may come up later. And that connects you even more, those, those tiny little moments. You also talk in the book, you share a few a couple of stories about the moments in which you learned by getting it wrong or or by doing something you felt was right, but then being reflected back to you that maybe someone wanted something different. I'm curious if you could share how it felt for you when you really connected with someone across a difference, like, the, the, you know, there's a difference, a power differential or something, and it worked and how that felt for you. Some of the things I'm thinking about are first, um, and this took 24 years, I do a TV show called The News Hour on PBS. Uh, and I did, uh, I did it for 24 years or so with Mark Shields and Mark was left and I was right. And Mark was a generation older than I am. Uh, Mark's a Boston Irish Catholic. I'm a New York Jew. Uh, and so there were, there are significant differences. Uh, and yet I think over the time we came to, uh, have a similar spirit. <laughs> uh, and so we fought about big things on TV, but we were never mad at each other in person. Uh, and so I think that was just born out of some sort of mutual respect and Mark's really golden nature. And so that's a time a across an ideological difference. I'm sticking to the news hour. Another friend, and again, also sadly passed, uh, was Gwen Eiffel, who was the host. And, uh, the day she died, I went back to her, all the emails she sent me and I realized how often she was angry at me because she thought I hadn't shown up on the show properly. It was nothing personal. It was just like, no, you need, to, you can't take a day off. You need to show up. You know, like it, it's these sort of like your, what your boss tells you. Uh, and we had a, a friendship off the air as well. I guess it was across difference, so some racial difference, but mostly it's because that she was a tough boss, <laughs> but um, a tough boss, but also a person with a glowing heart. And so, uh, you know, those glowing heart, both Mark and Gwen in very different ways had glowing incandescent personalities and they make it easy. We started out kind of doing the civity interaction and there's there's one more piece of it. So I want to like in this moment, do the second part of it, which is the final part of the civity interaction um, now that we've had a chance to talk a bit and then I'll continue on with the interview. Civity does this thing about above ground identities and below ground identities. We use the image of prairie grass where you can see the grass, but there are roots or trees. And so I'm curious and I'll, I'll share as well. Um, and you can decide if you want to go first or you want me to go first. But what do you think your above ground identity or identities are the ones people see by just looking at you? And then 
your below ground identities, the ones people can't tell? I guess um, my above ground identity, people think I'm nerdy, uh, bookish, uh, cerebral, uh, and cheerful. I'm, I'm rarely uncheerful in public. Uh, and I think uh, my below ground would be um, a little less nerdy than people think. I, I often feel like they're shocked that I listen to hip hop music or something like that. Like, like, no, why is that so complicated? A lot of middle-aged guys listen to hip hop and maybe I'm a little better at baseball than people would imagine, but uh, I'm also a little less cheerful than people imagine. I think my above ground identities are like friendly, open, welcoming, energetic, hopefully caring. I think people count on me to sort of be very welcoming and very like all and come on, everybody come in. And I think my below ground identities are that definitely. I mean, I mean that. But I think also I am more awkward and shy than people know because I'm so I'm such an extrovert, but I'm also very shy and very awkward. And um, but I don't think I show that to the world much unless it comes out uh, accidentally. Um, So thank you for sharing that. And I'm curious, um, how did it feel to listen to me? share my story for you. I, I love that kind of conversation. I love the honoring when somebody offers a vulnerability and somebody else uh, responds. I think it's, you know, I, we're sort of in the same business of getting people to go through these sorts of exercises. And I often ask people in our business, how often does somebody say none of your damn business? And my answer is almost never uh, that if you give respectfully give people a chance to tell their story about talk about themselves they eat it up, uh, and there have been studies show that people um, like telling their stories more than they like money. They will give up money for the chance to tell their story. Uh, and, and Studs Terkel was a great journalist who um, did these oral interviews, and he said, just said, you listen, you listen, and people will talk. They will always talk because no one has ever asked them before. And so I felt as good as, as advertised, even in this little exercise we did. Oh, that's awesome. How did it feel when you shared your story, when you shared uh, the information that you shared? felt, you know, risky and good. And I've learned this as a public speaker. Whenever you're speaking before any size group, uh, throw yourself on the audience and they will catch you. Yes. And that the, the bad public speakers do not, they, they stay behind the podium. They, but if you emotionally throw yourself on them by some vulnerability, something, uh, they will catch you, and, and that's the key to having a, a good speech, frankly. Uh, and so uh, I've learned to I've learned to trust people. And sometimes you'll get betrayed, and they won't catch you. But I, it's still always best to lead with trust. Uh, it's worth it in the long run. I love the way you phrase that. I also do theater acting, and and that energy you feel from the audience when you're acting, it it, it does it carries you. You. Bring up this it, again. It's not it's not massive in your book, but I did hear it. The idea of privilege, and we touched on it earlier. What interactions across difference were like for you when you realized you had privilege? You know, was there a moment when you realized you had privilege, or was there a moment when you realized, oh, it's different for me? Like, for example, the the woman who gets friendly versus not friendly, or um, or or women who have to think about uh, walking at night, whereas men never have to think about that stuff. Was there a moment when you sort of realized this for yourself or was it gradual as well? I'd say it was gradual and far too late because you, nobody feels they have privilege. Like everybody thinks like I'm, I'm just another schmo and life is hard for me by the way. But you know, obviously the economic privilege is the thing everybody knows is once you hit some sort of middle class or upper middle class lifestyle, you, you can't help that. Like I remember when I was young and struggling, <clears throat> not getting anything published, 
I would never buy orange juice at the grocery store because orange juice I learned was surprisingly expensive. And now I don't check. I just buy the orange juice. And so that's for like a, a class rubric that I've cost. And now I don't have to check the price of, of a carton of orange juice. And so whenever I buy orange juice, I'm aware of this, that, oh, I'm, I don't really, I'm lucky I don't have to check. So that's that's one of it. Um, and then, you know, I, I get to work at the New York Times and I see me and my colleagues as just regular old schmoes. Um, but that's not how the rest of the world sees us for good reason. When you have this platform, it comes with a certain amount of power. And it also comes, by the way, with a certain amount of hostility. <laughs> People love to take down a Times person. But mostly it's just the, the buildup of, you know, you can name them all, white male, professionally successful. Uh, and so I've learned when people come at me with critique for my privilege, um, my instinct is to say like, oh, I'm one of the good guys here. You don't understand. You should see my point of view. But my job is to um, just, as they say, stand in their standpoint. It's to ask them three or four or five more times, tell me about your point of view. What are you seeing here? What am I missing here? And I may not fully agree with them ever, but at least I'll have showed them the respect of asking them a question. And I quote a book in the in my book, which I highly recommend, called Crucial Conversations, written by about six authors. The lead one was a guy named Joseph Grenny, I think. Uh, and they say, um, in any conversation, respect is like air. When it's present, nobody notices. And when it's absent, it's all anybody can think about. So uh, my job as the more privileged one is to pay uh, close attention to the emotional undercurrents of our conversation. Uh, to make sure the other person feels respected. And I will say when I've gone and interviewed people who have more privilege than me, either because they're holding high political office or, or rich people, um, I do, um, I'm hypersensitive to how I'm treated. <laughs> uh, and when, when, a, when, a, when a leading world figure, leading politician who I interview is condescending or shakes my hand without really looking at me, I'm like, screw you. Totally. <laughs> like, is there an experience where you wish you would have gotten to know someone better? Constantly, like the first 50 years of my life. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I, I moved through life with sort of an aloof uh, temperament, an aloof mode. I also have an efficiency problem. And so I say, when, if I'm going to the gas station uh, and I'm pulling up to, I, I think to myself, well, I can get two emails done in the 90 seconds. It'll take me to fill gas. And so I've got this clock in my head. And if you encounter relationships with a clock in your head, I've, I've got to get off and do something else, then you're probably not spending the kind of time you need to on that relationship. And so I have a friend uh, here in D.C. who um, she, she and her husband like their friends to be what she calls lingerable, the kind of people who just want to linger after a meal. They'll, they'll like stay for another hour and a half after a meal. And I believe me, I was never that person. Now, I hope I'm becoming that person. But. I remember one time we went, went over to somebody's house for Friday night dinner and um, the host at 8.30 said, okay, bedtime, I'm going. And he, he cut off the dinner like so early and so inappropriately. And I was like, thank you, thank you, thank you. You're my favorite person on earth right now. <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. <laughs> I relate to you in that way. And the idea of like, I'm on, I have things to do. I'm on track to, my heritage is Italian, but I'm American. And I was visiting cousins in Italy years ago, and it was what you say. Everyone was lingerable. I mean, everyone was just enjoying the moment completely. And I thought, God, I wish I could do this. I want this. I want to be able to enjoy every moment 
completely the way they do. That was a good lesson. Maybe the greatest meal I ever had was in Italy in Tuscany. And at the, we were at a restaurant. It was Saturday afternoon. And we didn't get the meal until two hours in. Like they, exactly. they brought the wine right away. But yes. we, and like we were there for like four and a half hours and we're looking around at all the families and like nobody has left. <laughs> it's, this is going to be a half day adventure this long. Right, exactly. <laughs> I, I'm curious, how did you come to reorienting your professional and personal focus? And again, you've touched on this, but, but this is a, a, a shift. You know, you're, you're a journalist, you're a columnist, and then you see, I got to do this. So how did you come to reorienting this focus in your life? Yeah, I, I guess you could say um, I became aware of the inadequacies in my life. Yeah. And so we writers are just working out our stuff in public. <laughs> uh, and so I really did it not as much in my column, though, a little. Um, as in my book. So around about 12 or 13 years ago, like I, I realized I was not as emotionally open, not as emotionally agile or adept as I should be. So I, I did what any nerd would do. I wrote a book about emotions, and which was called The Social Animal. And then I wrote a book about moral formation because I wanted to learn about how to become a better person. Uh, and then I wrote a book about how to suffer through hard times. And then I wrote this book about how to know a person. And so each peace has been a part of a journey. And I I'm, wasn't aware that I was setting out on a journey when I started. I just was pursuing what seemed interesting to me at the time. But people kept coming up to me, especially after my last book, The Second Mountain, and saying, oh, I'm really interested in the journey you're on. I'm like, what journey am I on? I'm just writing books. But when you look back on it, um, there's a phrase from some philosopher, the owl of Minerva flies at dusk, which means we only get wisdom backwards. Um, and so when you look back, I have been on this journey to be a fuller human being, and I, I work it out in public. And my one of my favorite saying about writers is, we're beggars who tell other beggars where we found bread. And so my job, and I get to do this, I, I just sit down and read or write and talk to people. And if somebody says something to me or I read something that I found helpful, I'll put it in the books and maybe other people will find it helpful. And that's pretty much what I do for a living. So I asked you how, why was it important to you? to uh, share these things and to focus in this relationship space? Well, I share because uh, I'm pre preachers have a phrase, I convert myself from the pulpit, that it's their sermons that converts them. Uh, and so it's the act of learning and talking. And everyone has sort of spiritual disciplines. Um, some people keep gratitude journals or prayer journals. I, I just write it out. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's how I can focus on it. And... There's something now that I'm thinking about that a little paradoxical about choosing a profession to write it out all alone while writing about relationships. <laughs> um, but I, I do think, my, and my wife says that the act of writing this book has changed me a bit, has made my conversational tone a little different, my style a little different. So it, it, it sort of works <laughs> to, to sit alone in a room and write about relationships. <laughs> <laughs> sure, of course. Hey, yes. That's beautiful that your wife has noticed this shift um, in, in you. How did that make you feel when she, when she um, shared that? Those are good moments when people come and And I, I get that a fair bit that you've changed. And I, I think I'm an example. And I, I think most of us are, but don't appreciate it. That it's A, it's never too late to really change a lot in life that and I tell this story in the book about a guy named Andrew Newman who was went to Harvard in the 40s and was studied by these researchers all his life, along with a whole cohort of other people. And at the end of his life, they sent him the transcripts of the interviews that he gave when he was a college student. 
And he sent them back and he said, you sent me the wrong transcripts. This is not me. I, none of this. I didn't believe any of this. None of these things happened to me. And they said, no, that was who you were, but you've rewritten your past. And so I think we all do that. We try to, we imagine that we were more similar to who we are now than we really were back in the day. But we, people really do change. One lesson I can take from it, you may not have intended it, is to give people permission. It's okay to change. It's okay to um, to evolve throughout your life, to shift, to follow new pathways. Um, I think that's a gift as well um, that you that you could offer in this book. Yeah. I would say one of uh, one of the things that struck me in my last book, most of my books, my readers are reflect the readership of who buys books, and that's sort of 60, 40 women to men. Uh, but uh, in my last book called The Second Mountain, I would look down the signature lines, book signing lines, and there'd be eight guys and then a woman and then nine guys and then a woman. And it turned out in that book, I talked about some of my personal suffering in the midst of you know career blessedness. Uh, it turned out a lot of guys needed permission uh, to reveal that vulnerability and especially successful, professionally successful guys. And I realized I could open another profession as a CEO whisperer <laughs> uh, and sort of like because <laughs> CEOs would come to me and say, you know, can we have a phone relationship? I, want, I have nobody to talk to. And so um, sometimes we can give the people around us permission by modeling a certain behavior by spilling your guts. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you discussed the role of curiosity. So I'm curious in all of this, how important is the role of curiosity in what you're talking about or what we're talking about here today? Yeah, I think the number one reason we have bad relationships is people are egotistical and they're not curious about the other. Uh, they want to talk about themselves. I've come to conclude that it, only about 30 or 40% of humans are question askers. You meet with them and you get to know them and, and they're perfectly nice people and they say interesting things but they just don't ask you about you. Uh, and they're just not that curious. And I'll leave a party and I think, you know, that whole time nobody asked me a question. And, and I've learned, I learned this since the book was out, that if you really want to persuade somebody, the formula is about 80% listening and 20% talking. That listening is more persuasive than talking a lot of the time. And so I just think getting that curiosity about people. And you never know what people are going to say. Once you start talking to people, people have hidden depths about themselves that uh, it's I found it just super fun. Thank you to my guest, David Brooks, New York Times columnist and author of How to Know a Person, the art of seeing others deeply and deeply being seen. Civity is a culture of deliberately engaging in relationships of respect and empathy with others who are different, moving people from us versus them to we all belong. To learn more, go to civity.org.